Hey, it's Ronnie Gibson again. This is another episode of Short Life Advice. Today I have with me... Lachey Gibson, the clinical director of the Adoption Center for Family Building. Lachey, how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't refer to my wife by Lachey very often. I usually call her Shay. So uh, if I say Shay, that's who I mean. And... As you heard, I have my wife with me here today. This is a special episode, episode number 35. Thanks for taking the time out. Shay just, she, as she said, she's a clinical director and uh, she just started a new job and, and became a director. Um, what, what are you doing at this new role in this new job again? Uh, so it's a private adoption agency. So we're assisting uh, birth parents that want to give their children up for adoption and we match them with one of our adoptive families. Okay. And if you can, I, I want to give people a good background of, um, you know, kind of where you started, uh, maybe went to college and then kind of that uh, whole journey through that and then coming to Chicago and then kind of some of your roles that you um, experienced through your, I guess your whole career. Okay. You don't have to go in too deep, but just kind of give a nice summary there. So for undergrad, I got my bachelor's of social work at IEPUI, which is in Indianapolis. Uh, right out of college, I had a role as a family resource specialist. So I would go into homes. Uh, basically, I would cold call families, whoever came into our clinic and had a positive pregnancy test. I would cold call them, hope to get into their home and assess them for our program. The main purpose of the program was to prevent families from coming into the system. I would assess them and score them on basically, a, you could say, a 100-point scale of their risk factors. So a lot of these families may be low income, just not have the right amount of resources. So we would connect them with a specialist to educate them, get them connected with resources to, for instance, know how to um, not co-sleep with their baby or safe sleep, uh, simple things like that. And I really liked that job because it was more preventative so we were catching families maybe right at the right time to where their children weren't being removed from their care. So I really love working on that end of the spectrum. I did that job for about a year and a half, um, close to two years. And then I quickly learned that if I wanted to move up in my career, I would need to get my master's in social work. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like this was really talked about uh, when I got my bachelor's, how important it was to have your master's as well. And before I was leaving that job, my supervisor actually wanted me to move up within the company, but to be pretty transparent, there wasn't going to be much money in it, unfortunately. Yeah. You were making what, under 30000 uh 29000 or, or so. I think around. I started around 27000 28000 oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> And that was, yeah, with a bachelor's degree. So even though I love the work, I still had to make a living. I mean, it. Some of it was a little comical that I was probably making as much as some of the families I was assessing. Uh, we were probably hitting the same poverty <laughs> uh, income there. So I decided to actually move to Chicago. Um, 
you being one reason <laughs> to look into Chicago, but I also knew that there was going to be more opportunity and they had really, really good master level programs. So I got into UIC at the Jane Addams College of Social Work and it's very well known for their social work program. So I actually got into an accelerated program and finished in about nine months uh, with my master's. Right out of getting my master's, I started working in child welfare. Um, That's something that I never wanted to do, actually. I always heard how tough it was to be a case manager. And again, you're kind of starting at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, I had a master's and was still only making probably... Thirty-two thousand to start out, and that was kind of a rude awakening because as soon as I got this job, it was okay. You need a license if you want to move up in management or kind of bump up that salary. So you go and get your master's, go in debt a good amount more, and you uh, get four thousand dollars more in salary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. And here I was thinking, you know, oh, Chicago, I'll be making more. And that just wasn't realistic. So I wouldn't take back this track record that I went on because working in child welfare, I learned so much about social work and it was a very difficult position. I was working with birth parents that just had their kids taken away. I was licensing foster parents to become adoptive parents. I was also writing adoption subsidies. So I was doing three roles in one, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did that job for about a year. And then I was approached about becoming a supervisor. And I at first did not want to become a supervisor. I thought I would kind of lose touch with working in direct service. And I kind of liked being on the front lines and working directly with the family. So I thought I would lose that. And then I also didn't think I had the skill set yet. I definitely did not feel that I was ready to be a leader. Um, But luckily I had a supervisor and even a director actually at that point that were really encouraging me to pursue it because they thought I was well prepared and ready for that position. Mm -hmm. You also being one of the people that was telling me that it was not an opportunity I should pass up. So I actually became a supervisor and a little adversity I had to face in the first couple of months is I became a supervisor in October and then my team collapsed in January because of funding. Mm -hmm. So I was also faced with another challenge there if I could be laid off and start looking for other jobs or I could start supervising a program on the south side of Chicago that was known to be one of the most difficult because they were working with teenagers. It was very sad, actually, just teenagers that no one really wanted. So it was a lot of crisis management, uh, on call all the time, kids running away from homes, being hospitalized. So it was a lot of long hours. But again, I wouldn't take back that experience because it really challenged me as a supervisor. And then from there, I went to my previous job at Center for Law and Social Work as a program supervisor. Again, I was working in adoptions. It was a lot less demanding than the job in foster care because I'm not wearing three hats like I was. Um, I was actually supervising a team 
of, I believe up to seven people and I didn't have to carry a caseload. That's something I forgot to mention working in foster care as a supervisor. You're still a case manager because if someone leaves, you're carrying that whole caseload. So I was still doing home visits for multiple caseloads as a supervisor. So I really didn't feel like I was getting the time to focus on being a leader because I was so busy doing crisis management um, and trying to just support the team in that. So in this new role, I really got to focus on supervising. We were completing adoption subsidies as well as what's called a successor adoption where an adoptive parent passes away and that child then has to be readopted. So again, it was a working with a different population, getting to know another side of social work. We also offered a variety of other services um, that I don't need to get into, but it was a, it was a good experience. And then now in my current role, I, yeah, I didn't think I would be moving up to a clinical director role, but I received my license uh, in August of 2020. So this really was the next step. So it couldn't have come at a better time. Your clinical or CSCLSW? LCSW. LCSW. So it's a licensed clinical social worker. So you basically need that license. uh, If you, in most director roles, they'll require, but some honestly don't, but this will help me navigate in the future if I want to be a therapist, uh, have my own practice. It just really opens a lot of doors Mm -hmm. for your career. So a lot of the people listen, they get into sales and a lot of people (laughs) listen, they get into sales and they want to make a lot of money. What, you know, social work is a very high percentage women, probably 90% or higher. I would imagine it's very, very high uh, populated with women very, very low pay, as you could hear throughout most of your career. A lot, a lot of these women uh, stay in those positions and not management. And it seemed like that's what you're going to do. Why social work in for such a low pay? And <laughs> uh, I know it's kind of cliche to say I'm passionate about the work, but I originally went to college wanting to do radiology. And I wanted to actually be an ultrasound tech. Where that came from, I honestly think as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, whenever I decided to have that career that I was thinking about job stability, uh, pay. My sister was a nurse, and I love the idea that she was helping people, also making great money, and had job stability and security. And then I got to college, and I got as far as the labs and everything. And I liked the hands-on work, but the, the curriculum and the nursing just did not interest me. I was, didn't feel that I was motivated for that radiology program anymore. So I actually talked to my advisor and she said, you know, in talking with me many times, it seemed like social work would be a good career for me. So I took a diversities class and that's when I knew that's what I was interested in. I love the idea of working with people of all different races and sexual orientation and just I coming from a small white community it was very eye-opening for me for how much I didn't know about people and culture and Mm -hmm. great and I think I felt like I'd be helping people on a different level outside of the medical field where Mm -hmm. there are many helpers and Mm -hmm. so it was just it was just feeling more right to me so then when I got into the career realizing it was very low pay I still just love the work that I do and in speaking from that experience, I was nervous to become 
a director because I thought I would be hit with, okay, am I really helping people still? Because in each position I've ever had, I feel like I was kind of getting a little bit more removed. Um, In my first role as a family resource specialist, I was preventing kids from coming into the system. And then in child welfare, I'm working with kids that are already in the system. And it was very challenging, but it was very rewarding as well, just to see some of the situations I did and having good outcomes or seeing bad outcomes and knowing where the system's failing, just to be aware of that. And so getting out of child welfare, I'm like, I don't know, am I going to like this line of work because I'm kind of removed from that front lines and am I still helping people? But to get back to your point, it's, I am still working with a needed population. This is just a different one. You know, these are birth parents that are, for whatever reason, choosing not to parent their child and they're choosing someone else to do that. And I think that's just an incredible experience to see. Mm-hmm. And even though it doesn't pay well, at the end of the day, I just love that I'm making some type of impact and some type of difference in the world. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've noticed, you know, in, in social work, and I would imagine just just through your your career and working uh, with with a lot of women and in, in, in the social work field, there is an opportunity. Um, I actually I have a quote saved from a book that we both read, uh, Cheryl Sandberg, "Lean In," and it's just encouraging women to lean in uh, in their careers and and try to. Uh, there's like a I've noticed it just in your careers and in your different jobs of there's an epidemic of confidence in women and not being able to advocate for themselves and and push for uh, and confidence in themselves just to leapfrog themselves in their career, whether it's management or, or or advocating themselves for other roles that could get them a higher pay increase. And the quote that she had was for women feeling like a fraud is a symptom of a greater problem. We consistently underestimate ourselves. Multiple studies and multiple industries show that women often judge their own performance as worse than it actually is, while men judge their own performance as better than it actually is. So when men are overconfident, women are underconfident. But where I'm getting there is, and I think you did a very good job in your career is there's an opportunity, especially if you have a very good work ethic and and you start to build your confidence to move up in your career quickly, because I think your managers and your first job saw that out of you. And they're the ones that recognize and said, Hey, I think you actually would be good for management. And then, you know, you always told me, you know, I, I would never be a manager and it's not something I wanted to do, but it took someone else to say, hey, recognize that out of you. So I think um, there really is a great opportunity for women in all, uh, you know, all careers, not just social work, but all industries, like she was saying, like Cheryl Sandberg was saying to do that. And I, I noticed that's where you, you were able to, you have a great work ethic and, um, and, and able to push. But I think if we could get more women to recognize, because even just as you were leaving and uh, your, your previous company and you're trying to get women to 
know, like I said, they're mostly women trying to get them to uh, apply for your position. And it, and it was difficult getting them, women that have been there for four or five years plus to get the confidence to go for that role. Um, like, I don't know if there's a question behind here, but like what, like, what are your thoughts on that and how you kind of. Yeah, no, I actually, I remember that quote in the book as well. And it really did resonate with me because it's what we, some of my colleagues and I have referred to as the imposter syndrome. Like we don't feel like we deserve to be here essentially like in the roles that we moved up in. And I had that feeling for a long time. Anytime someone would, approached me about moving up. It's just, I didn't understand what they saw in me that made them think I was ready for that type of role. And I had that feeling immediately every time. But after gaining experience and seeing the way other managers that I really looked up to um, handle some of those situations and again, kind of giving me those pep talks, I wish I would have had that confidence earlier and going off what Cheryl Sandberg was saying, I think a lot of women do struggle with that because when I was leaving my current role, there was a, another program supervisor that was in a, you know, same, same position as I was in who had been there for five years and she's been working in social work for probably well over 20 years, I would say. And she told me I would be in a much different spot in my career if I handled the things the way you did. Mm. And that really resonated with me as well, because this is somebody who has years of experience and a wealth of knowledge in social work. And here she is like wishing she handled things the way I did. And I think part of it too, is I can't really say no to opportunities. It's, it's very hard for me to turn down things. That's in several things in life as well. I'm a very yes woman, I would say, but it really is hard for me to turn down any opportunity, especially starting out where I did and knowing there isn't a lot of growth in social work if you don't grab those opportunities and run with them. Mm -hmm. And there was another point I wanted to make, just even salary. I remember being offered salaries starting out where I didn't even question it. I'm just like, yeah, sounds good. And then I read that book and it's like, why am I not challenging it? Like, I feel like I'm worth more than that, then I should stick up for myself. And it was very hard to, but in my last position, I talked them up um, a $2,500 salary increase. And then when I approached them about wanting to move up within the company, I received another $3,000 salary increase. So I was looking between five and $6,000 within the first three months of working. Mm -hmm. And in speaking to other colleagues that are women said, just, I'm pissed off at myself for settling with my company because they're learning that other people in their same role are making $10,000 more than they are. Mm -hmm. And they could have gotten that if they would have just advocated for themselves. So I, I think it is important to, talk to other colleagues whenever you can. As you mentioned, I was really trying to get some of the, some of my associates to apply for my position and it, it took some talking to them. And I even told them, you know, my journey in this. And even if you don't feel like you're ready, you have to seize those opportunities because you're, 
even if you don't get the position, your management team is going to see you going after those opportunities. They're going to see that you want to move up, that you want to accept new challenges. Mm-hmm. So it's get yourself out there. Yeah. And then they would see you uh, applying or at least interested and then would put you in a better position for that. Those type of roles are getting you the experience to get you there eventually. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that Cheryl Sandberg talked about that in book a lot as well as uh, women not asking for you know pay increases or higher salaries. And that was something that men do a lot. And um, I, I think a lot of it and the, one of the other things she quotes I love by her is we always talk about all the external struggles for women and she's talking about women in general. But the most important thing for women to for their uh, to succeed in life and, and you know in their personal life and career is what we don't talk about is the internal struggles, which is a lot of the, you know this confidence thing and and being able to be more um, have a more strengthened inner self. I would say what. And it seems like you've developed that over the last five years. Could you talk about some of the things that you've done uh, that you've implemented in your life that's helped with that, uh, getting you to that position to where you become more confident and become um, uh, more emotionally sound? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's difficult because I, I feel like I still struggle with the confidence. It's just, well, first thing that comes to mind is just being more mindful overall. As soon as you start having those negative thoughts about yourself, just recognizing that. And you and I talk often about not being attached to your thoughts. So even today, I was getting a little anxious about the first day at the new job. Like, am I ready for this? And am, am I prepared? And immediately, I'm just like, I was hired for this position for a reason. I, you know, anything that comes at me, it's a learning experience. It's a new challenge and just see it as that. So I think being more mindful when those negative thoughts are coming in and just immediately pushing them out and reiterating that positivity. Mm -hmm. So that's been very helpful. Um, That's come from also meditating and reading several books that really talk about just slowing things down, paying attention being in the moment, you can't stress about things that haven't happened yet or things that have already happened that you can't change. So being mindful overall has really helped drastically. When, when did you, I, I think that's an important thing to note and I think could uh, solve a lot of these, uh, I guess you would say issues with this lack of confidence is when did you realize that the voice in your head isn't something you should identify with, or it really isn't you. (laughs) Uh, I honestly, I'm not sure when I started thinking that way or, or getting more involved in that way of thinking. I would say it's been at least three or four years now, Mm -hmm. but definitely in the last year I've been more consistent and, I'd say mastering my mindset and <laughs> reference another one, just a lot more disciplined and some 
how I think I've come to be that way and just more disciplined is focusing on how I'm spending my time and a couple of the books I've read, you know, Atomic Habits by James Clear really lays it out how to build healthy habits for yourselves and how to eliminate those bad ones. And it really helps with time management. And if I'm reading books that are going to help me advance, whether in my career or my personal life, then those are types of things I should be reading. Mm -hmm. Of course, I still alternate in the good fiction books about dead wives and things, but (laughs) I need a good suspense in there every now and then, but really focusing on how I'm spending my time and, you know, you can only try to think of how I want to word that, but you really do want to be your best self. So focusing more on how I'm spending my time and what I'm taking in, what I'm putting out. Mm -hmm. And I think reading is what kind of led you to that realization of, um, to not identify with your thoughts and, and emotions, which uh, which is the issue I see when it comes to this problem out there for uh, the you know lack of confidence and just advocating for yourself and and because the voice comes in your head or, or the thought comes in your head and it's like oh, I'm not good enough. Someone else is better. No, I can never be manager. And, and you start having these thoughts and if you don't if you're not mindful of them they they just start going haywire and more thoughts kind of extrapolate onto that and then it's then next thing you know you've done uh discourage yourself to a point where you don't even want to you don't even want to apply or or advocate or you're just like "Ah, i'm not i'm not good enough but like if you notice that well like you did with your current job and you're showing up and you're starting to get discouraged, could e- easily took that uh, too far. But then you notice it and it's like, no, I'm not, you know, I, I earned this position. Uh, it's going to, it's going to be some bumps, bumpy roads at the beginning, but I'm going to learn and I'm going to adjust. And I think it's very important. I think you, and how you do that is, you know, reading books like Ron Doss, Be Here Now, and, mm-hmm. uh, of, of just being present and of everything and of, of your thoughts and, and the things that you do on a daily basis. Um, I think, it, too, with my previous associates that I was trying to encourage to apply for my role, also letting them know it's okay to, to feel uncomfortable and know there's things that you're going to have to learn because there was one person in particular that I think would make a great manager and she was very hesitant at first, but in telling her, she was so nervous about public speaking. That was one thing Mm -hmm. that was kind of discouraging her from applying for the role. And I told her, how are you going to overcome that? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing right now to, you know, get better at public speaking, make that less uncomfortable. And, we worked on a couple of things, but then I told her, you're you're going to be challenged with public speaking as a manager. And until you're in that role and, and doing it more, you're not going to get more comfortable with it. So you have to put yourself in uncomfortable positions. And then before you know it, it's a second language. Like it, you do it without even thinking about it. And that's part of what it is too, just being okay with that. Mm-hmm. And put, putting yourself out there. Um... No, that's good. I, I remember when I first started management and that was one of the 
they say that's the biggest fear people have even over death is public speaking. (laughs) And uh, I think everyone, it's something you never get over. You get a little less nervous, but you know, even four years into management and doing some speeches, it's still nice to nerves get high, but being able to be mindful of those emotions and everything help a ton. But yeah, that, that's very good advice for anyone is to, you know, if especially if you're scared to public speak, well, you need to probably start putting yourself in position to do it or you're never going to uh, be good at it. And we, we like to identify ourselves with things like that. Well, I'm, I suck at public speaking or I'm, you know, I suck at reading or whatever. The only, and and we just believe those things and we have, and it develops these uh, like belief systems in us. And and then we just kind of just, well, that's me. You know, I'm, I'm Ronnie, Mm -hmm. the person who sucks at public speaking and, and doesn't read books because I'm too cool for books and uh, doesn't, go running because, you know, uh, I like to lift weights, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And you start identifying these things. And then when you're mindful and being open to being able to learn and just being aware of like, maybe I'm not very good at public speaking. Maybe I should put myself in position to, uh, get better at this. And then maybe that'll improve my life. And, you can do it books or whatever um, mentors like yourself and your, in your previous jobs, I think are huge. I think that's a part of management. We could help others and it's not just women, you know, there's uh, might have confidence, especially early on in people's careers is always a tough thing to get across, get over. Yeah. I think it definitely comes with experience. Yeah, that's one part of it for sure. Um, and I think that's what got yourself to <laughs> my cat's scratching her claws on the <laughs> <laughs> journey when to make appearance. Um, we're, one thing I think that got you there and, and leapfrogged you in your career was your work ethic and um, having what I call like a, a craftsman mindset. I read in this books, be so good. They can't ignore you. Just trying to develop career capital and, and like you, where you, you weren't even, you're making very, very low pay. And, but you, you didn't really complain too much. You just put in an immense amount of effort and you knew that you could, you didn't have time to complain about what other people were making or, or this career, you know, maybe I should have joined another career or, you know, whatever it is, you just put your head down and, uh, and then it worked. And, and then you're only got four K salary increase. And then you just decided, well, I need to, I have this job here, you know, it's the best thing for me right now and, and worked in the moment where, where do you get your uh, work ethic? from I was just thinking that as you were talking I I think honestly it was well starting out being raised primarily by a single mom and 
I saw her working three jobs at one point and we just never went without. I mean, she would get another job if she needed to, just to make sure we had what we wanted. I didn't think about that much when I was younger. I mean, you know, you're more caught up in Friday night basketball games and things to really think much of it. And then when I turned 15, I remember going up to the local diner and and putting in a job application and got that job. I remember we would serve the food, we'd cook the food, and we'd cash them out. So we were just doing everything, which kind of blows my mind as a 15-year-old. Like, I wouldn't want my 15-year-old self back there cooking food, but <laughs> it, it was a good job. Uh, my mom actually told me she didn't even want me to be working in school, but I wanted my own money. And I think that kind of stuck with me. In college, I started working at the zoo, and I even had people make fun of me that I was working at the zoo, but I just didn't care. I mean, it was a way to have flexible hours. I could still do what I want in college. I had an income outside of my parents. So again, didn't bother me. And then later in college, I started bartending and serving. I think everyone should honestly work some type of job like that. It it was a great experience. It was difficult at times, some of the people you had to deal with, but it makes you respect the industry a lot. Uh, so I think just always having a job, I never wanted to not be working. So if I didn't like my current job, quitting wasn't an option. And I think you and I had that conversation when I was working in child welfare, it was so stressful to the point where I was rarely home for dinner. I was constantly working if I wasn't home and it was just a level of stress that I never experienced. And I would have liked to quit at one point, but I think part of it was pride. I would have to quit a job like that. And I was good at it as much as it sucked at times. I really did enjoy the work. Um, it just had a, a lot of negative sides to it. So I don't know. I, I think in every job, I just knew I had to get through it and something better would come along. But quitting wasn't an option because job searching and being without a job was worse. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever I had to do to work my way up and, it helped once I learned, and that's that's some advice I could give to anyone starting out a career is make sure you're doing your research and knowing what you need in that field to be successful. Because if I would have known early on that I needed a master's, I don't know if I would have went to school back to back. I know I did cross my mind because some of my friends were doing it, but then I kept being told, no, you need experience in the field. So I chose to go that route, but then it really wasn't talked about about getting your license I just thought oh I'm a master's I'm gonna have so many more opportunities I'm gonna get paid a lot more so I think in anyone's field just know what you need to do to be successful mm-hmm. and that way you're a little bit better prepared for knowing what you need to accomplish yeah I think that's fantastic advice because no matter what you want to get into you should probably figure out what the best people are doing in that field and then there's plenty of places you can do it. There's a ton of podcasts you, I'm sure you can find in any career where successful people are on there talking about what they learn and and, uh, and, and you can probably gain a lot of intellect and apply that to your life so you can skip a lot of the heartaches that you may have to go through if you didn't do that. So it's like, yeah completely agree there. And even networking. I know it's funny because I remember in school when professors would talk about networking and I hated it because I didn't really 
in undergrad, it was more of a commuter college. There wasn't a whole lot of campus life. I found networking difficult for me. And in grad school, it was only nine month program. So I had some select professors that I liked and, but I made like two close friends. Uh, it, was just, it was so quick. And at that age, I was more focused on, I just want my degree and I want to get back to working in my career. But networking now in all of my previous jobs, I've met a couple of people at each one of those jobs that have helped me tremendously now. I mean, they still write me, write me letter recommendations. I can still contact them if I have a question uh, related to social work that they may know. And so it's really broadening that reach of people that can help you excel, whether it's just to bounce ideas off of. And in social work, there's various avenues you can pursue. I wanted to do medical social work for a while, but now I'm in private adoption. So I know in talking to colleagues, it just gave me a better idea of what other opportunities are out there as well. So for sure, networking and Mm-hmm. getting to know the right people yeah, finding mentors and mentors are you know podcast hosts I, I a lot of podcasts I, I look at the people as mentors so that's one way you could do it but even just finding mentors out in the world a lot of times you'll if you ask people they'll they'll give you advice you know they're not going to be mean or anything and, and turn you down if you get turned down then no big deal but uh you'd be a lot better off um, asking and, and you know and, and whatever advice that you may get it's going to be very very valuable to your career what's uh what's something in the last five years that you've changed your mind about nothing's popping up <laughs> right away so let me think about this yeah something that uh you maybe I mean, it could be even further, but something that the first thing that, limiting belief or something. Yeah. The, well, limiting beliefs, I feel like I've surpassed a, a few of those again, just in my career, but I think we've talked a lot about that. So I think something I've changed my mind about is changing things in my everyday life. If it's really going to benefit my health or whether that's general health, mental health. I know sometimes you would approach me with things and I was very resistant to it. Uh, I'd get, I know we we talked about this too, where I would almost get annoyed that you would approach me about changing the toothpaste we've been using (laughs) forever or just having to filter our water and structure it. And so there's certain things that, you've approached me with that would definitely be better for my health, but changing something I've been doing forever was just, I don't know, it just bothered me. Mm-hmm. And it almost, and I know that's me, a problem with me internally because I'm immediately taking offense to it when you're just trying to help. And that's not just you. I mean, it's anyone trying to offer advice on how I could better myself. Like you shouldn't immediately be defensive of that. Mm-hmm. So I think in the last five years, I've, definitely been better at hearing those things out and, you know, weighing like, how is this going to hurt me by making this small change? Again, I mean, I think I've done pretty good lately (laughs) at being open to some of these changes, but I, after making these changes, I wish I could talk my other family members into doing the same thing because it really does make such a difference. 
whether that's being more mindful of the food we're buying or buying organic vegetables instead of, you know, conventional toothpaste without fluoride, you know, filtered water. There's a number of things that we've changed, but I, I think it's important to see where that trigger is coming from and that can work in with, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. But yeah. with that thing specifically, I've definitely changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, a lot of people will probably love you mentioning some of those things because people know me and do a lot of, you know, different habits than, 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 <laughs> yeah. than the general public. So uh, I'm sure a lot of them wondered if you were eating chicken liver. She, that's, no. that's <laughs> and organ meats, but uh, now I think you said it there is just being open uh, to learning, you know, and not being uh, not identifying with your current self. You know, we should all, like I was saying again, just reiterate, not identify with whatever version of ourselves we think uh, or we believe we are currently. Uh, I mean, I always talk about, look at yourself five years ago. Myself five years ago was pretty ignorant and, you know, <laughs> they, they had a lot to learn. <laughs> and just be, being more open to learn and not ha- being closed-minded to anything. We, we have a, a picture frame up here. It says, have a mind that is open to everything and attached to nothing. I, I love that quote. You, you can't be attached to anything in life because that's what's going to uh, prevent you from being open to other ideas. And I think you did a great job at that. And that's, you know, that's how you've been able to open yourself up to learning yourself and being able to educate other people, family members, whatever, if it's uh, eating healthy or exercise or whatever it may be. It's funny because I think some people in my personal life think that I'm, I don't want to say like a pushover, but a little more passive and maybe it's just you driving these things, but I have to remind them, like, I can think for myself, (laughs) I've made these decisions, but maybe need a little bit, you know, a little push and sometimes, but (laughs) tell the guests, you know, I'm not very, I'm not very pushy, you know, I'll throw some things out there, but I, I, you know, most of the stuff you picked up as well you've learned on your own and it's more of you just educated yourself too and then usually tried it out. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say you're you're too pushy. I think uh, <laughs> I think in the beginning when I would get defensive, uh, it's something we both had to work on because I know when you've made changes in your life, you just wanted me to see the benefits as well. And we kind of had to come to a compromise on that for a while until I was really open to making some of those changes. Mm. But I wouldn't say you were pushy at all. I mean, it's funny because I, one time I remember when we were both eating more healthy and I was also nannying on the side and a nanny family gave me a cupcake. to. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I really don't want to take this inside. It's late. I shouldn't be eating after 8 PM. But so I literally took, the alleyway, ate the cupcake, threw it away in the trash, and walked in the apartment. And when I told this story later to my friends, they're like, oh my gosh, you're scared to eat your Ronnie. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, I swear I'm not, like, hiding candy in my room or anything. But to me, it was funny because I think I just subconsciously, like, didn't want to be – and again, you wouldn't judge me for it, but it's almost – 
someone else would acknowledge it. So it'd make it real. And I knew I could probably wait and eat this cupcake for lunch tomorrow. Maybe not at, you know, nine 30 at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's an internal thing. I knew what the better option was, but I still wanted that damn cupcake. So I was going to eat it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you know, and it's, it's definitely a work in progress. I think we've become better, you know, communicators over the last few years and, for sure. Uh, this being our 10 years of knowing each other um, here, I think now, uh, one of these days, I don't know the exact day, but yeah, uh, I think coming up this weekend, met 10 years ago, but uh, I share a lot of times and I think I wanted to share this on the podcast because it's helped so well in our relationship and everybody I tell when they implement it with their significant others and, and or, or roommates or that it, it develops a, a better understanding of each other. And, and so we call them marriage meetings. And I, I heard it on a podcast. I can't, it was on Tim Ferriss, who basically where I've emulated my podcast after, but I can't remember the exact guess, but he, he mentioned marriage meetings. It's essentially for you Schneider people, essentially like a BP, you know, a business partnership of, of, where we come together and we talk, I have three things of like, what's Lachey doing well? Uh, what could she get better at? And then, um, and then what's something, and then we kind of talk about like things, uh, kind of mutual things that we maybe, for example, we got a cat uh, journey to two and a half years ago or so. And, no one wants to clean out the litter box. <laughs> so if one person's doing it more, then you could see how someone would get annoyed from that. Um, and it wasn't like a big ordeal, but, but that was one of the things where we just like, let's just, uh, we didn't even have an argument on it, but it, it, it prevented arguments probably, or, or just internal struggles that maybe not even, maybe would have built up if you want to share it. But that's what these marriage meetings do. And, we try to have them probably once a quarter or so, I would say. And I think that really helped us of opening up that communication of just uh, what are the things we're doing? What could we get better? They're not the easiest conversations, just like in, in your BPs with your associates. They're not easy conversations because a lot of times it's constructive criticism for each other. And uh, the only way you can really get through that is by talking about it. Uh, any comments on our marriage meetings? I've actually recommended them to several people as well. And it's funny because when I tell some of my colleagues about them, there's like, oh my gosh, you guys are a power couple for <laughs> doing this. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't consider us a power couple, but I think everyone can benefit from them. My friends have used them as well. It's just, like you said, I think it can be uncomfortable at times. Cause I remember one time you came up to me, you're like, yeah, we need to schedule our next marriage meeting. I'm like, great. There's something I'm doing. <laughs> like, there's something that we have to talk about. Um, but it really is a good space to have these conversations. And it's crazy how just talking about household chores can remove some of that annoyance that builds up, even with, like you said, roommates. I remember you used to leave your running clothes like on top of a shelf in the kitchen on top of like decor. And it drove me nuts. I was like, why does your running clothes have to go in the kitchen on top of like this random decor? And you had no idea it bothered me. 
So it's something as simple as that. So it's definitely beneficial. And I think now why we don't have them as often is because it's gotten us more comfortable with having those conversations organically mm-hmm. and knowing that this is a two way street. We both could improve in some way all the time. Like mm-hmm. neither of us are ever going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one other thing I've told people about is one thing that really helped and I repeat myself, you know, it's not like we're a perfect, you know, we, we still have, you know, it's not like we're the perfect couple, but one thing that helped us a lot was the, this exercise called the life book. Mm-hmm. And it, it's essentially just something we went through together, just taking a, a dive into each part of our lives when it comes to health, when it comes to exercise, when it comes to career, when it comes to uh, our, our lives together, like what kind of uh, home do you envision yourself having and or what kind of career do you envision, you envision yourself having? What salary, you know, what what's your purpose in life? Uh, I, I've never, until then, I never even thought about having a purpose. Like, what's my purpose in life? What do you mean? You know, if you would <laughs> ask myself when I was 18, well, I'd get this quack out of here. So I think me, me and you doing that together and kind of revisiting that uh, once a year, I think was very powerful. And it, it works in similar ways as these marriage meetings of just having this open dialogue of the things that are most important in our lives and that we do every single day. Yeah. I also really enjoyed that as well. And it was great looking back on it a year later to where we had achieved most of our goals that we'd set for ourselves. So that was very eye opening because I think sometimes, I don't know if people do like new year's resolutions, you know, by month three, you're, it's out the window for some, I mean, I know for me, it always was, I never really stuck to it or thought real hard about it. So this really broke it down into each category so you could really give significant thought to what you want out of each category. Mm-hmm. And for me, kind of stemming off the, the book I referenced earlier, Atomic Habits, writing those things down and seeing it on paper and then setting smaller goals to attain those bigger life goals, you're going to be more successful doing that. Mm-hmm. For instance, me wanting to get my license a year ago, it was this dreaded thing that I was avoiding. Even the application took me months to fill out. But when I actually sat down and set that goal of you need to have the application done, I'm sure there's still some procrastinating there. But once I looked at it, it was not nearly as difficult as I built it up to be in my mind. Mm. So then the next is, you know, start the studying. What type of studying works for you? And I integrated with other habits. I'd work out and bike while I looked at flashcards. So breaking down each step so it's just not this big, you know, I need to get my license. You mm-hmm. could set smaller goals to achieve it. So that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Putting Just putting things down on paper, putting it out into existence, I think is what this life book exercise. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for uh, this life book. We paid up front and then got ours reimbursed with some deal. So it definitely costs money, but I'm sure there's other things out there that you can do with your significant other. But one of those things on there, it's just putting down some on paper, putting it out into existence. And it's that self accountability thing. Like if you put down on paper, I don't know about you, but when I do it, 
I like doing weekly uh, intentions and I just send them out to my team and I just do it mainly to hold myself accountable. But it's, it works the same way. One of those things, one of the sections of the life book was, was family. And we, uh, and that's special to us now because you just shared some news with the world that, uh, what happened? Uh, we're 12 weeks pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> 12 weeks pregnant. Um, so, you know, it was, that was one of the lifeboat things we put down a few years ago, but we wanted to work out some things on our career first and do some more traveling. And um, this was kind of the time we put down and finally come to fruition. So a lot of things probably going to change here in uh, 2021 <laughs> come August time, but we're both excited. A lot of marriage meetings I'm sure we're going to be having. <laughs> yeah, be up the ante on marriage meetings. Uh, do you have a, a fav- favorite failure of yours? Or at the time you thought it was the one of the worst things in the world that could happen to you? But uh, I think mentioning it earlier that my team had collapsed right when I became a manager I think that was very hard at the time because as I had explained, I wasn't sure if I was ready for this type of role. And then within two months, I'm being informed that it's being like ripped away essentially. Mm. And there were a lot of like questions I had at the time, if I was making the right decision to supervise this other team. And I'm very glad I did. Again, just a huge I would say, I don't know, the experience in itself and working with that type of population and gaining the experience I did, I really needed that. I think it also put me in some positions as a supervisor very early on. I had to, I actually chose to sit my team down and tell them that the team had been collapsed Mm -hmm. because they, again, were going to be dispersed to other teams and my director had offered to do it for me and I just liked to be transparent with my team. And I told them that from day one, they can always expect me to be open and honest. So I wanted to have that conversation myself and it was difficult because you have some staff that just got out of college. This is their first job. And then they're being told their, you know, their job is essentially on the line, but luckily for them, they could just reintegrate into a different team. So that was, I'd say, a failure that ended up being a good experience, and I wouldn't take it back uh, because there were other challenges, again, with that team that I don't think I would have gotten anywhere else. Yeah, I don't think you would have did that unless you were put in that situation, which, uh, you know, and I remember you not wanting to do it, but you were kind of looking, it's like, what am I going to go back uh, to being a regular uh, associate, you know, which nothing wrong with that, but you decided to take a leap and go to the, the South side office, which is, um, you know, not in the best areas sometimes, uh, working down there. Definitely um, not the best area. <laughs> where you were at. And so that was a concern as too, but, um, I think it really strengthened, um, your whole, you developed out your career capital really nicely looking back on it. It did. And the team I was able to supervise, they were great. They were a very close knit team and, that just <clears throat> reminded me of another challenge just early on was I had a 
one of my teammates actually passed away in a house fire and I had to, again, sit this new team down and tell them about that. Mm. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges I think I'll ever have as a supervisor or in management, because again, the uh, director of the company was just like, you know, I'll call everybody and tell them. And I'm like, no, like I've said it from day one. I like to handle these things for my team. I'm their leader, like their direct leader. I should be the one to break the news to them. And that was just a tragic, tragic experience. And building a team back up after a loss like that is very difficult Mm -hmm. because it's hard as a social worker to give compassion and empathy to these other situations when you're grieving like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about self-care. It's definitely not just this buzzword or cliche. Like you really have to find a way to take care of yourself in situations like that. So Mm -hmm. again, a lot came from that experience in itself. That's good. Um, you mentioned a few more questions here running close to an hour, but, uh, I, uh, you mentioned a a couple books. Do you have any book suggestions that really made an impact on your life that you'd suggest people read? Uh, definitely David Goggins can't hurt me. Uh, people love gosh, that, that book, I want to reread it, actually, because it was one of the most motivating books I've ever read. And I didn't expect that. I remember you reading it, and I'm just like, eh, maybe I'll like it, you know. But I flew through that book, and I remember it being Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and I ran over three miles. And that was just unheard of for me. I still don't love running, but I really enjoy what I get out of running. So to run in the winter over a holiday, uh, that was huge. So David Goggins, for sure. Um, a guide to developing life's most important skill, happiness by Matthew Ricard. That was one of the first books I read that really talked about mindfulness and not assuming malice, you know, and there was just a lot of good life lessons and how to actually be happy and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So that one for sure. Um, I already mentioned, Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. Um, Ram Dass, Be Here Now, you mentioned that one. Ryan Holiday's books are great. Um, Ego is the Enemy is the one specifically that I really enjoyed. Stillness by him as well. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a there's a few for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are all, all great books and uh, pretty easy short reads. A lot mm-hmm. of them too. So what, if you could have a gigantic billboard... Um, put anything on it, reaching millions and billions of people, metaphorically, what would you put on it? Well, I have tattooed on my arm, be here now. So I think that's probably one that pops in my head, but. Why be here now? I think just a reminder to people that, again, be present in the moment because it's over so fast and there's so many people stressing out. I mean, myself included when I need that reminder, but stressing about the future, things that are coming up. I have a court hearing tomorrow at 10 AM and typically I would just be stressed out. What am I going to say? What do I need to prepare? But again, that's tomorrow's problem. Like you need to be here in the moment and same for anything that's happened in the past, you know, today's almost over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think it's a good reminder for people and brings you back to the present. I would say that, or honestly, something simple as like smile. I remember an old secretary I had 
would like laugh at me because it'd be like 545 on a Monday and I'm still, I'm coming back into the office to work more. And she's like, why are you smiling? I'm like, why not? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I think it, it, it can like boost someone's day is simply just smiling at them or complimenting or maybe that compliment someone today. Uh, I know I was running one morning and this woman probably in her sixties, early seventies ran by me, smile and high five me. <laughs> and it just made my morning. Like I thought about it all day and I'm like something so simple. So yeah. Compliment someone today, smile more, be here now. One of those. I, every now and then I, I hold a little motivational quote group with 50 people on it from Schneider and, and send one out. But every now and then I always tell people to smile and every time you start to smile you start to laugh and then it immediately changes your mood of just you forcing us even if you're sad or depressed about the day or uh we get a it's raining in the morning and you're not looking forward to day just forcing a smile on your face will cause you to laugh even more and it just changes your whole uh, tune uh, of your day immediately so I, I encourage that all the time. That, that'd be powerful. And, and the one thing I want to add when you when you talked about be here now, one thing that was very powerful for me is when I when I was first hearing that, you think be here now in the good moment. So I'm at a concert with my friends and, mm. and loved ones and and experiencing the music and or traveling, you know, or at the at the beach, those type be here now, yeah, that's soaking in, but what really changed it for me was be here now in the difficult moments and, and soak it in because when, when we inevitably pass away, we would beg for those difficult moments back. Just if, if I could, you know, if you could go back to those moments and uh, just being here now, because a lot of other people probably have a way, way worse than you not getting that job interview that you thought you had or uh, losing that customer or, or not getting that sale or having a really bad fight with your uh, wife or significant other. And just being here now in those moments is the most powerful for me. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's one other thing that came to mind is with be here now. I remember in my old job, a couple of people would always sign in for work for the day. And we had the agency wide chat and it was a pretty small agency and it'd be Monday. And they're sending out things like, Oh, it's Monday. Is it Friday yet? And then it's Tuesday. And they're like, Oh, it's this many more days. So Friday. <laughs> and it was like that all week. Mm-hmm. And then on Thursday, you know, it's Friday juniors, you know, it's almost Friday. Finally on Friday. It's like, <laughs> was it that miserable for you? Like, like you wanted Friday here that bad. And I know some people just joke around and, you know, just something to lift spirits. But in my mind, I'm like, if you're coming to work every day, just like wishing for the weekend, like think about how much time you're just passing by wishing away. Like you really have to take advantage of each and every moment. Like you said, even in the bad ones. But Mm. I think when you tell people this, they're probably, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. But it's like, no, you really have to live that. Mm -hmm. Because I notice myself, like even if we get into like, a little argument or something. And as soon as I recognize that I'm still just, my mood is still changed. Like mm-hmm. I quickly try to tell myself, like you got to snap out of it. Like, do you really want to be upset about, I don't know, Ronnie not making the bed or something <laughs> like mm-hmm. usually not something that trivial, but 
yeah, it's just don't waste time on those things. Just glance at your arm and yeah, <laughs> put it somewhere where I can see it. Yeah. That's where her tattoo is <laughs> here now on her, on her forearm. Um, two two last questions. What's what's your morning routine look like for you, and how's it changed over the last couple of years? And like, what what's been the most powerful for you? Uh, I can say that quarantine is really been my friend in in some ways uh, because it's really allowed me to have extra time in the morning to dedicate to those healthy habits that I was building. In the past, I would try to make myself work out in the morning, but usually I opted for that extra 30 minutes of sleep and then I'd have to do it at night. And then when I get home from work, I'm not feeling it as much. So I'd say in the past, uh, probably over a year now, I've been waking up pretty consistently. Uh, I get up, I work out, whether that's going for a run, I have a stationary bike. I've actually started a circuit training workout um, that I do now. And then, of course, start the coffee pot somewhere in between there. But after that, I don't know, typical work day. I don't think I need to break it down that much, but... Coming home from work, I think acknowledging you, it's definitely something that I've loved in our routine, whether we're hugging each other, I don't know, kissing each other, just saying hello. Because I know when we actually have the baby and everything, that's still going to be very important to me that we're acknowledging each other, you know, especially when we're maybe not working from home. I know for us, it's been different. We've been working from home together now since March of 2020. So that looks a little different, but still, I really enjoy that in our routine. Um, I really enjoy making dinner together. I know in my previous jobs, I was here late. Um, so you would primarily be starting dinner without me or we'd eat separate meals, honestly, a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. So now that's been important in my routine as well as uh, making dinner together. I'm usually reading in the morning as well when I bike. I like to multitask. Mm-hmm. I've probably read more in the last two years than I have, gosh, I don't know, since probably grade school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then like to end the day with a good show yeah. <laughs> or a movie. It's nice to kind of detach and treat yourself from putting all the work. That, that, that was, that's one good thing of like habit stacking atomic habits. It mm-hmm. was a skill of just like reading and exercise was something you want to do. So you got an exercise bike and you do them both at once and it, you've been able to just tear through a lot of books and, and you read a lot of fiction, but you, you still throw in some nonfiction, uh, like a lot of those books that you named off that, that are very helpful. Yeah. I typically alternate between fiction and nonfiction back and forth, or honestly, some of those fiction books I can finish too and pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, reading is definitely been very important in the in the routine now and I know meditating I was doing very good with that as well with the habit stacking to where I'd leave my headphones on my nightstand so I could wake up meditate then work out and read Um, so I was knocking out a lot of those habits early on I need to get back to that actually because I lost my headphones and it talks about an atomic habits where you gotta make it accessible and I shouldn't be making excuses and still be meditating but that's actually really helped me just there's not really any resistance there because it's already set up for me Mm kind of like laying out your running clothes Mm -hmm. um 
that's one thing I do. As soon as I get out of bed, I put on my workout clothes. I do not go out and sit on the couch because um, I know I'm probably not going to work out. Mm-hmm. Even with pregnancy now, uh, there was a lot of mixed feedback on if I should be working out still. And I think it's important to educate yourself because that's just another easy resistance. Like I'm pregnant. I probably shouldn't be working out, but what you learn is it's actually very good for the baby and brain development. So I've actually been working out harder. I feel like in the past month or so, just uh, changing it up with some circuit workouts and trying to build different muscles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. That's what the routine looks like. Went it off with this. I know you gave a a lot of advice throughout, but um, could be a, a woman in her, in her career or just anyone in general, just graduated college. What's some advice you'd give them to uh, try and leapfrog their career and get on the right foot? Uh, I know I talked a lot about this, like you said previously, so I guess I can kind of reiterate some of it. Um, Definitely pay attention to the internal chatter that you have. You really need to be confident in yourself, whether you're just out of college or not. You just went through college. That's an experience in itself, but you have to be confident in yourself, seize opportunities that come your way. I know that's something I've always done. And I, again, I think it's hard for me to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely seize any opportunities that come your way. As I mentioned earlier, researching what it takes to be successful in your career and in your field and networking. You can talk to people that are already in that field and multiple areas, see what their experience was like and what they suggest. And trying to think of one more thing I would give them. A lot of good advice. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, Watch the show Yes Man and Jim Carrey. That's what I think of <laughs> yeah. when, you, when you say, when I say yes. yes. Just, just say yes. That's what I thought of too. Because he goes skydiving and stuff and you went skydiving and a bunch of other things in your life. Yeah, and I, it's funny because I had a very close friend of mine come to me and say like, don't you ever say no? Like you ever get tired of, cause she thinks I just socialize a lot and do a lot outside of work. And she just doesn't know how I manage that stress and time and everything. And I, I learned to say no in, in the right moments. I think it, especially now where my energy may not be as high. And if I need to stay home and kind of regroup instead of be hanging out, um, you know, again, just putting my energy where I think it needs to be. So I've learned to say no in certain situations, but saying yes a lot has got me a lot of good experiences. <laughs> I've definitely tried to get you to be a little more selfish in, in, yeah. in your later years. <laughs> that's, that's probably one thing that's changed in the last five years. I've gotten better at that. And I, I think it's because I, I love being social and I have so many different friends groups. And my brother-in-law told me that. He's like, you need fewer friends. It's like, <laughs> I'm like... It's fun. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I've learned where I need to say no and yeah, take some time for myself. Well, I think it was a good podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. It's funny because I always hear you doing these other people and now I get to be the guest myself. Yep. <laughs> it's been fun. Yep. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs>